the Kansas Reflector podcast. I'm reporter Rachel Mebro, and today's guests are Adina Morris, who serves as Kansas Appleseed's first-ever child welfare advocate, and John Wilson, president and CEO of Kansas Action for Children. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Rachel. We're going to focus on youth justice and foster care. Let's start with the state's foster care system. Um, Kansas Department for Children and Families Secretary Laura Howard recently told lawmakers there's been some great progress in the foster care system, with some of the lowest numbers of children entering care that we've seen over the past few years. Now, would you agree with this assessment? Are we making great progress in this area? I, I know, I did not see Secretary Howard's presentation. I know that children are staying in foster care longer. I know that they are experiencing more instability. They are experiencing approximately seven moves per 1,000 days, um, according to the federal um, regulators. And um, the stabil- they're not experiencing st- stability, and they are not receiving the mental health services that they need. <coughs> Um, time to reunification and adoption is is way too long. So are we making progress? Perhaps. Do we have a long way to go? Yes. So I, I, uh, I appreciate the responsiveness of the department for uh, on, on lots of issues, and we've been working with them very closely on this sole family permanency option. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen in you know, private meetings and what I've seen publicly have been their willingness to acknowledge where they've made mistakes and also their desire to truly do better. And one of the ways they're doing better is by engaging people who have been impacted by the system and who are uh, impacted by the policy decisions that are made. So I think that's really good. And, you know, the Department of Children and Families and the child welfare system can only do so much. We also have to think bigger than just when kids enter the the system. We need to prevent them from entering the system in the first place. So there's been a lot of progress with Families First Prevention Services, and and there's even more that we need to be doing, and the legislature plays a key role in that. When we look at these programs that help reduce adverse childhood experiences, programs that help families uh, meet their basic needs through food and housing and cash assistance, and unfortunately, Kansas hasn't been doing a great job at increasing access to those federally funded programs. And so we see that almost, I, th- I want to say it's um, less than 50%, like maybe around 40% of kids ending the foster care system are doing that because there's some sort of issue with the family or some sort of like behavioral problem or, you know, um, just an umbrella of issues that are not related to abuse or neglect. And this kind of ties into what you're talking about with family for services. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we are fortunate to be a real a leader in the country on uh, adopting family serv- family first prevention services funding and supporting programs and it's really that along with other programs like the uh, child abuse and prevention grants that we administer are are ways that we can provide kind of locally driven solutions to supporting families and it looks different depending on uh, different areas of the state but when we look at programs like home visiting programs or parent education programs or other things that really help caregivers be responsive and provide the, the kind of support that they need those are really valuable, and that's what the Families families First Prevention Services do. That's what community-based prevention grants do, in addition to some other state programs. I'd like to, to pick up on one thing that, that John said when he talks about different areas of the state, and I think that's someplace that we can do better. Uh, services vary uh, widely between um, areas of our state, the western area, the eastern area, and I think we owe it to all Kansas children to give them the same supports the same in-community help 
them and their families. And and I want to wholeheartedly agree with John that that keeping children out of foster care should be our primary goal. And so if the legislator could look at um, redefining the definition of neglect, if biological families could receive respite care, if they could receive the funds that they need to take care of their children in the same way that foster families do. When I first started this work, I was approached by a biological parent who said to me, she, she, someone is being paid to raise my child. They took her from me, and someone's being paid to raise her. And, and that, you know, I have never forgotten that. That stays with me because when, when kids enter the system, there's a lot that we can do to stop that. And then, and then we don't have the, the re-traumatization. You have the, the trauma that, that got them to the place where they needed to be removed. And then, and then the trauma of taking them from their homes. And then the trauma of moving them. And, then, and, and it's not addressed. So I think, I think there is a lot that we can do. I think we have to make it as universal and as the same throughout the state as we can. And does that sort of scenario happen a lot where maybe a family doesn't have the resources, their child gets taken away, put into foster care? Yeah, I mean, so it's a situation like, it could be a snow day and a parent has a a job where they have to clock in and they don't have time out and, and and they leave their children at home and then somebody calls that in as neglect. Well, if you have daycare, if you expand daycare services, you know, I mean, we really... You know, I sat on the school board in, in um, USD 497, and, and what do we do with for families who don't have a village and don't and can't get together child care at quarter to six in the morning on a snow day? I mean, I think I think we can do a lot on the front end. Um, I was talking with colleagues in New York, and and they're trying to enter this pre-petition world, right, where we we face. We address the problems before the sink petition rather than post-petition. And, and how do we keep families together, which is really what children and parents deserve, is just to be together whenever possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think about all the ways that lawmakers in particular can support more positive outcomes for young people. You know, we hear a lot about adverse childhood experiences, but the kind of flip of that is like, what are the protective factors that we should be promoting? Yeah. Things like parental resilience to stress and adversity mm-hmm. and trauma, um, positive social connections for the parent and the child, um, parent understanding of child development, uh, and then very concrete supports, financial assistance, the child care assistance mm-hmm. that Adina mentioned. Those are all important protective factors, and you can map those back to elements of the state budget. You can map, map those back to decisions we make around tax policy. And I just think a, a, a fundamental challenge with the legislature right now is there is a, a, a de-emphasis on prevention because uh, it takes time and it takes money up front. Um, and then there is also just, it seems to be conflicting values around lawmakers want to do good things for families. They Everybody expresses their support for children, but it runs into conflict or there creates tension between that and and the majority opinion, I think, about the limited government, limited spending, and those sorts of things. And I think all of us need to do a better job of reminding lawmakers the value of prevention and getting further upstream uh, for many of these issues. Because it's the same thing for K-12 education. There's a huge focus on 
um, third grade reading and math scores and all that. And you don't fix that in third grade. You, you do that by providing high quality early childhood education before then. Right. Zero to five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that kind of brings me to the next question. Um, you know, what other legislative changes would be good or what should we try and push for during this legislative session? By we, I mean, you child advocates, not me the journalist. I think one of the things we're all interested in seeing is um, the establishment of the Office of Child Advocate, a division of Child Advocate, um, not an executive order subject to the whims of administrations, but um, a statutorily recognized. Uh, so it, that's possible this session. I think you would agree. Um, John and I were both part of a unique youth-led legislative uh, effort in the sole family permanency option that was in committee yesterday. And I think that that would offer about to about 600 kids in Kansas, that would offer another permanency option, um, not an either or, but an inclusive permanency option. Um, I think exploring um, legal resources for biological parents and for children, I think there's some discussion about um, best interest of the child and GAL versus um, expressed interest of the child and GAL. And I think that there is no legal representation available to biological parents in this state. And I think that's something. Um, continuing um, efforts to develop community-based mental health services that impacts every Kansan, not just those in the child welfare system. And I'll let John say a few things because I could go on for days. <laughs> well, get ready because I could go on for days as well. <laughs> I mean, um, start with what's uh, what's closest to home for Kansas Action for Children is uh, the cost of child care in, in the state. And we have seen a, a proposal from Governor Kelly for record investment in the early childhood system in $56 million, which is a terrific start to addressing that. Um, we, but there, there's also more that we could be doing to, to support child care and our mixed delivery model, just like we support K-12 public education. Well, the state needs to expand Medicaid uh, so that more Kansans have access to affordable health insurance and who can um, stay healthy so they can be better caregivers. Um, we could look at tax policy, and instead of passing a flat tax that disproportionately benefits higher-income Kansans, we could pass tax policy that supports uh, low-income households and middle-income households. So that could look like a child tax credit. That could look like the proposal on the table uh, uh, around doubling the child independent care tax credit, uh, immediately eliminating the food sales tax on groceries. Mm -hmm. Lots of different things that when added together can support families struggling the most because I mean, all of us have been there. When you're stressed out, you sometimes aren't able to make the best decisions. Mm -hmm. And I know I've had individual conversations with lawmakers who seem to believe that it, it's just really easy to be poor. and it's. Um, and, and it is not. And I think some of the most creative, hardworking people in the state are those have, who have to figure out how to make ends meet between rent and gas and food, all of it. It's very stressful. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can do, not to take away all of the burden, but the more that the state can do to reduce toxic levels of stress in household, the better outcomes we'll see for children. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with all that. And I kind of want to go back to this idea of community mental health resources really quick. What are we seeing right now for kids in the foster care and, I guess, kids at risk of going into the system in terms of mental health resources? Well, I think we're seeing very long waiting lists. I think we're seeing a lack of access. I think we're seeing issues with records being um, transferred to foster families. 
I think we're seeing um, issues with medication, um, difficulty getting medication, difficulty knowing what medication the kids are on. I, I think <laughs> the bottom line is there are just not enough mental health resources. There, there are not enough therapists. There are not enough psychiatrists. There's not enough care in this state, anywhere in this state. And, and yes, the Department of um, Children and Families and um, I'm going to mess it up. KDS, <laughs> they they are working, and it does take it does take time. And I commend them on their efforts. They really are working through this. And and I think whatever the legislature can do to encourage that, to fund it, to produce more psychologists, more master's level therapists. Um, telehealth, teletherapy, all of those things. It's just, it's access where you need it, when you need it, and that that just isn't happening. And we have got to remain, we've got to keep our foot on the gas. That is probably one of the the biggest issues in in foster care right now, and and the state, frankly. Yeah, and and I would say, you know, I mentioned Medicaid expansion earlier, but there are also ways to continue to improve the existing Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some administrative work that could be done to um, open up the Medicaid billing codes to more types of providers and more types of places. You know, we have a very stressed uh, mental health system in Kansas, and our community-based mental health centers are, they do phenomenal work, but they are not everywhere, and they can't see everybody. And so I think if we can share the load by allowing more providers to uh, get reimbursement for certain services, then I think that would be better. And, and, and we need to be doing that in school-based settings yes. and in community-based settings. Yeah. I think DCF is actually expanding some of those codes, and, and we just need to keep doing that. I mean, I think that that's helpful. Um, and, and schools, right? Schools are the one place where you can, you can catch kids. Usually you have them. You know, you get them. They're a captive audience. Um, and, I, and I think we can, in, if we, we've got to continue to invest in public education and, and our teachers and our school counselors. Um, that's, that's incredibly important. And right now we're kind of hearing of this pipeline where kids are not getting the help they need, and then so they're kind of put in the foster care system, and then there they also don't have the resources they need to sort of address these mental health needs. Right. And one of the proposed solutions I think that's going to come up this year is juvenile crisis intervention centers, and I wanted to get the thoughts on that. I don't know anything about that. Um, so I <laughs> juvenile crisis intervention center. So in general, group situations are not what children need. Um, if, if, if it is a, a day program, if it's a drop-in mental health center, if it's a, if it's a counseling center, that could be good. I, I, don't, I don't want us to house kids. I want us to keep children with their biological families whenever possible. When that is not possible, I want us to quickly move children to um, licensed stable foster homes and provide the the trauma care that's needed um, if you can reach kids in schools for trauma care that's great um, first you got to recognize that it's traumatic and I think I want everyone to know it's traumatic what led to you being removed from your home is traumatic being removed from your home is traumatic in some instances the police show up and they put you in a room and they don't tell you what's happening and they take you somewhere and they separate you from your siblings and you don't know what's going on, and you're eight, as an example. So, if it's a if it's a congregate living situation, 
that's not what kids need. If it's, if it's community support, if it's where they are, when they need it, then let's talk about that. I also want to say, when we pull kids out of their communities, when we pull them out of everything that they've ever known, we traumatize them yet again. And we cannot move kids willy-nilly across the state and think that that's enough. Safety is not enough. If I could say one thing about the foster care system, I would say safety is not enough. <laughs> and then going back to... Well, actually, let's go over to juvenile fines and fees again, because this is an issue in our state that's been an issue for a long time, and we haven't really seen too much legislative action. So for those who don't know, teens charged with low-level juvenile offenses and who receive probation or community services, they could face thousands of dollars in court fees. Um, you know, sometimes they can't pay off the fees, and that's because our state is one of the few states that does sort of levy these fines on juveniles in the system. And I know you both have um, worked somewhat on legislation around eliminating these juvenile fines and fees. Yeah. It's a, it's a relatively low revenue stream, half a million dollars maybe. Um, but $100 to a kid is a lot of money. I've got I've got two kids. That's a lot of money. And, and if it incurs interest or if it compounds or if you lose your driver's license and you can't I mean I think it's the same for adults too they take your driver's license away because you owe money and then you can't get to a job to pay the money back I mean it it, it doesn't make any sense um, and and to for the state to collect half a million dollars on the backs of our most vulnerable people it is unconscionable yeah yeah I agree and um, for, for all the reasons Adina said we it's not a revenue generator, really, for the state. And uh, we know it's also just ineffective, too. Um, and I, I think the, the reason of why, why there isn't the type of action we want to see is just the lingering, I think, belief in the legislature that you have to be tough on crime and that these fines and fees will be a deterrent to future actions and that sort of thing. And so uh, with every, uh, every election, it brings kind of another opportunity that we have to educate lawmakers about the reality of it all. But it's, it, again, this is where pragmatism runs into tension with politics, is people feel like they will be politically rewarded by being tough on crime, or politically beat up for being yeah. perceived as soft on crime. But this is, this is not an effective solution, and it, it absolutely has to change in Kansas. It's, it's an instance of reality meeting child development. I mean, have you met a teenager that can think through his actions? <laughs> so if you think that a fine is a deterrent, a kid's got to know, okay, hey, if I break this law and this thing happens, I might be fined $100. I mean, kids, if, if I could intervene in that process, then the child wouldn't commit the infraction in the first place. I mean, I think, yeah. I think being tough on crime is, you know, that's fine. But it's not fine when you don't understand child development and you don't understand regular normal behavior and how kids act and yeah and and I, and I and we can't ignore the the disproportionate impact on black Kansans black and, and, mm -hmm. and, and non-white Kansans in in this and right. know that there are systemic changes that we have to make as well in order to, to see improvement but we but we can't ignore that this disproportionately impacts mm -hmm. a certain group of Kansans and let's talk a little bit more about the systemic changes. Like, what would you like to see there? Well, I mean, I think the legislation that we've been trying to work on is, is yeah. a terrific starting point where we, eliminate. where we eliminate those fines and fees. 
Um, and then, I mean, more broadly, like there's been years that, that the, there's been conversations in the state and nationwide about the types of reforms that have to happen with policing and over-policing certain neighborhoods or areas of communities. And all of, it's kind of an all of, all of the above approach, just like child well-being in general. We can't just make progress on child care or housing or economic supports. It has to be all of it. Yeah. As I often say, when it comes to the well-being of kids and families, it's, it is a recipe and not a menu. We need all or most of the ingredients for the recipe to turn out well, mm-hmm. whereas a menu, you can kind of pick one thing and, and be done with it. Right, and then a couple of years ago, we did see some drastic reform of, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the number for the law. SB 367. SB yeah, but then during the last legislative session, we saw a bunch of people come up and say, hey, this um, juvenile reform didn't really work because now we're seeing a bunch of kids in the system, we're seeing more crime, we've taken them out of the prison, but now, you know, they're running loose on the streets to kind of vote <laughs> some of the lawmakers. <laughs> So I wanted to get your thoughts about that as well, because I think that's something we're going to see again in the legislative session. Let's start with the premise that what kind of society locks up children? Let's start with that. Um, This is a a brilliant example of John's recipe analogy, which I am going to blatantly steal. Mm -hmm. Um, SB 36, the promise of SB 367, as I understand it, was to take the money that was saved from locking up children in Kansas and put it back into the communities to treat things that were happening in the communities, to, to, to intervene, right? In the same way we're talking about intervening and taking kids away from families, to intervene in kids breaking the law or being in situations where they, they needed to turn to drugs because something was missing in their lives, etc. So... This goes back to, this is the recipe, it goes back to the lack of support in the community, the lack of support for families. Um, you know, kids aren't born bad. Kids don't deserve to be shackled and, and locked in prison. Um, kids deserve to learn, to have the adults in their lives understand appropriate de- developmental behavior, to, to have guidance, to have um, adult figures they can turn to like soul family promises um kids deserve that they they and so that's we we have failed them um i i don't know what happened to the money i don't know what happened to the promise so let's move forward let's invest as john and i have been talking about in resources in the community and I know that there are some who say that the problems in the foster care system are because all of these bad kids are now in the foster care system. And that is not accurate. Children who have been traumatized and re-traumatized and not treated are in the foster care system. But they are not criminals and they, it is not their fault. It is our failing. We, the adults, have failed them. And then everything we've talked about, obviously we, there's room for great potential, great change in this state, but all of these plans seem like they would take a lot of doing, a lot of implementation. Mm-hmm. Are there any short-term fixes that would help out immediately? Or is that kind of like a wish dream? Oh, what would help immediately? I mean, you're right. It takes time. Um, we could do... Let's talk about therapeutic foster homes. Mm-hmm. We could... Uh, I know that there are 12... I know that DCF has $6 million. I know that there are, uh, I think that, that there are plans to bring more therapeutic foster homes on board. 
I am hopeful that that model looks like foster homes in communities where there are um, drug use support systems and there's mental health support systems. But even before you get to therapeutic foster homes, I want there to be supports for biological families in those same communities so that you don't have to take a kid out of, of their home and put them in another home. So it, you know, it all, it all goes together. Um, I don't... I don't know about quick fixes. John, you got any quick fixes up your sleeve? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have any quick fixes. Um, I mean, a good starting point is that for we, we have le- legislative leadership in various committees in the House and the Senate and a governor and state agency leadership who have a mindset towards wanting to do better uh, for kids and families. So the fact that that's not absent is a really good thing. The fact that we start off with a mindset of there's more that we can do is great. And I want to celebrate that. And then in terms of other other fixes, it's really trying to think about all the things that might contribute to challenges in a child's life. Um, and so economic stress is one of those, for, for household stress. So tax changes can happen relatively quickly, like a child tax credit or like the elimination of state sales tax on groceries. Those can provide some immediate uh, relief to uh, struggling families. Uh, and then administrative changes to programs like the child care subsidy program to where we make it even easier uh, to access the program can provide immediate financial support to families. Um, you know, there is this, um, there's a child welfare committee, sorry, a, a child welfare and foster care committee and also a welfare reform committee in the House. And I really um, excited, am excited about the, the movement that's happening in the child welfare and foster care committee on a number of issues. I'm a little nervous about what's what could happen in the welfare reform committee because I don't think you. I haven't seen uh, indications that they established the committee to improve the delivery of services and to increase access to largely federally funded programs that help with cash assistance, nutrition assistance, childcare, those sorts of things. So I want to keep a watchful eye on that. But that committee does have the potential to do better and to, to make things better. And it's up to us as advocates and, and to listeners to, to help them understand that welfare reform doesn't have just to go in one, just have to go in one direction of restricting things. It can go in the other direction of making programs better and accessible to the people that need them. We can go back to the Office of the um, Child Advocate because this idea of an independent Office of the Child Advocate, that's been kind of portrayed as a thing that's going to fix everything with the system. I mean, it was created a few years ago as obviously under, um, through an executive order with Governor Laura Kelly. And now we're hearing from, I want to say mostly Republican lawmakers, that having an autonomous office would really help out everything. And most recently, I want to say it was October when that five-year-old in Topeka died, and we saw a renewed call to action over, hey, we need to fix this, we need to get that office going. So, again, how much of a difference would this really make, having this independent office? I think it's important. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is the talisman that's going to fix everything. Um, I think it's important to have it in statute so that it is not subject to the whim of future administrations. I caution that I caution the the legislators I think to to carefully think about the powers this office would have and and where it would be housed. Although, but I I, I Kansas Appleseed wholeheartedly supports the establishment of the Office of Child Advocate 
as an independent oversight body um, for child welfare system. Yeah, we are supportive as well. And uh, to sound like a broken record, um, we need we all of us lawmakers in particular need to be thinking beyond the child welfare system in terms of yeah. supporting kids and families and doing as much as we can to prevent them from entering, entering the system in the first place. And so, all the things that we've talked about during the podcast, I would I would continue to reiterate those to every lawmaker. Yeah, and, and I would like to remind people that. Um, Child welfare is meant to be short-term, last resort, and, and the burden is high indeed if you're going to take somebody's child and say that you can raise them better than they are. And I, I, think, I think nobody benefits from a system that seems to be the first resort. And I think all of the things that John and I have talked about are, are the, the things that there's so much you can do before you get to that very last thing when all else fails, which is taking a child from their home. There is so much you can do. I'm actually going to sneak in one last question here about this scattered data system. Like, I've heard one other complaint is that we don't really have a lot of transparency around the data in the child welfare system. All the information is kind of scattered willy-nilly. Yeah. Is that your thoughts as well? We we don't have a statewide system. Now, um, we do have, DCF has a... um, an RFP out for a, a statewide data system that that's going to take some time, obviously, to develop and to and to develop appropriately. I think that that will help. I think that there is a huge public appetite for um, uh, accountability over the contractors who are providing the child welfare in this state, for um, transparency, for easily accessible. Um, uh, numbers, information, um, pros and cons, if you will, you know, education, training, staffing, what does the department do when things aren't working with, with a contractor? What, how does the re- department reward contractors when things are working really well? How does the department make sure that the same things are available in Hayes as are available in Olathe? How, you know, there's a huge public appetite for that. And I... Kansans are entitled to that. It's it's their children. It's their tax dollars. It's it's a, a system that needs to be completely transparent. DCF is working on that. I understand that, and I and there's more they can do while they're working on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and it would also highlight other areas where we're seeing um, interest in data and um, sharing data to to determine what's effective and what's not. So I serve on the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund, and we have. Uh, the Early Childhood Block Grant uh, funds early childhood programming and intervention, and it is rigorously evaluated, and that evaluation data helps us understand the types of things that are working. And uh, the Children's Cabinet has also been instrumental in creating this Early Childhood Data Trust that is bringing together state agencies to share data across systems, and that's revealed some really interesting findings. As an example, we know that children who have participated in Early Childhood Block Grant funded programs are something like 35% less likely to uh, enter the foster care system. And so the more that we can share data across agencies and through systems, I think the better outcomes we'll see, we'll we'll have also. Um, And that's one of the things I love about the Children's Cabinet in general is when we fund something, we have high expectations for evaluation of it. All right, I think we'll end it there. Thank you both for coming and being a part of the podcast. Yeah, thank Thank you. you.